It's Friday, April 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The defense has rested, the prosecution has rested, and closing arguments will begin on Monday in the trial of Derek Chauvin, accused of killing George Floyd. The defense will continue to claim that underlying health conditions and drug use caused Floyd's death. Chauvin has been charged with second and third degree murder, and also second degree manslaughter. The jury will be sequestered while they make their decisions. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, joins us to recap this week of defense witnesses. Next, in December of 2015, a terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, left more than a dozen people dead. In the aftermath of the scene, an iPhone 5C was found that belonged to one of the shooters. What kicked off after that was a fight between the DOJ and Apple to unlock that phone. Now, years later, we are finding out that the FBI turned to a little-known Australian firm, which used an exploit chain to finally get in. Reed Albergati, technology reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how a terrorist phone was finally unlocked. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Is this your decision not to testify? It is, Your Honor. All right. Do you have any questions about your right to remain silent or to testify on your own behalf? Not at this time, I don't. Joining us now is Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Janelle. Thanks for having me. Wanted to get an update in the Derek Chauvin trial. The defense has rested. The prosecution has rested. All the evidence that has officially been presented to the jurors, it's all done now. We're going to have closing arguments starting on Monday and the jury is going to be sequestered, and then they will render a verdict. So we're into the final stages of this whole thing. Janelle, tell us what we saw last in the trial. Uh, Derek Chauvin went up, and he declined to testify for himself. Yes, he declined to testify, which I don't think that anyone who has been closely following the case was surprised by. I know that I was not surprised by that, because had he taken the witness stand, he would have opened himself up to a very tough, cross-examination. We already saw this week alone when the defense presented their witnesses, the prosecutors were not playing around. They were very, very, very diligent, and they would have asked him to explain minute by minute, just like they have their own witnesses and the defense's expert witnesses, why he was on George Floyd for as long as he was. So he declined to testify Um, in his trial. And now, like you said, Monday, they will present closing arguments. And then once that happens, it will go into the jury's hands. And also um, this week, the defense presented their witnesses. They had seven compared to the nearly 40 that the prosecution brought. Right. When it was their turn. And one of their major witnesses was uh, Dr. David Fowler. He's a retired forensic pathologist and former Maryland chief medical examiner. So he was the main guy that was brought forth to counteract the witness from the prosecution. And he basically said that, you know, what the defense has been trying to lay out the whole time, that George Floyd died because of his underlying heart conditions, the drug use. And then he threw in some other thing, too, saying that carbon monoxide could have also played a role. This is coming from the police car when he was being held down. Right. He did. And that kind of threw everyone off, I think. He present he presented that and testified about that meanwhile under cross-examination prosecutor jerry blackwell got him to admit and acknowledge that there isn't even a clear understanding of whether the vehicle was even on 
most people believe that it wasn't even on. And even if it were on, wouldn't that still make Derek Chauvin and the other officers liable to some extent? Because it was their car and who else would have been responsible to have it off. So he introduced that and the defense, the prosecution rather, I'm sorry, they were quick to refute it under cross-examination. And also Jerry Blackwell got him to acknowledge that he hadn't even considered any um, test results of whether there was carbon monoxide in his blood. Like George Floyd hadn't, hadn't even been tested for that. So it kind of really came out of left field and he acknowledged that he had no data backing that that was kind of just his speculation based on his belief that the car was on and the proximity, the closeness with which George Floyd was to the exhaust pipe. There was also an issue raised of a paraganglioma, which is a tumor that they said they found in George Floyd's abdominal area. I think maybe on the hip, they might have said. So that was also brought forth. And they said that, you know, all of that stuff together is what caused George Floyd's death. But still, let's say all those things were in place. Would he have died under normal circumstances? The main exacerbation point was Derek Chauvin on his neck. So the defense had a really tough time laying all that out. And, you know, we'll see how successful that could have been. But it didn't really seem to strike the chords that they thought it was going to. It didn't seem so. And from the experts I've spoken to thus far, I've spoken to legal experts. And just from my own impartial observations, not only did it not appear to stick, it also ran counter to what we heard so many experts say that the prosecution called and also to the medical examiner. The medical examiner said that the cause of death, uh, he did say, you know, that the restraint was at the end of the day, the main cause. He said, yes, George Floyd was not the healthiest person, but the way that he articulated it when he took the witness stand last week and also in the autopsy report was that the aggravating factor was the pressure applied by police. So like you said, if you remove that factor, he wouldn't have died probably. So that's what it's unclear that the defense made that argument strongly. Yeah. And all those reports, they determined that it was a homicide in the defense witness. He said he would have ruled it undetermined. So just kind of parsing the words there, it seems like. And they also had a former officer testify also on the defense side saying that the use of force was justified in that case. How did that fare? He did. And he also went as far as to say that he wouldn't even have qualified or classified the, I don't know how else to describe it other than force, but he said he wouldn't even call it a use of force or excessive force. He said it was justified. And he basically at length made the argument that police are given, you know, free reign to act more aggressively than the average person, which they are, but that does not mean they don't have to still justify use of force. You can't just be aggressive to anyone. They have to pose a threat to you, to the public. And he made that point. And the prosecutor who was questioning him at the time said, you know, he was even baffled, visibly baffled by that. And that expert, uh, Barry He also said that um, George Floyd was resting comfortably and it took the prosecutor completely by he was completely shocked by it, as I think many people were like, I don't think anybody would describe the way that George Floyd was was resting comfortably. Yeah, I think Barry Broad even had to take some of those things back under cross-examination. So just little things falling apart on the defense side. As we mentioned, the closing arguments are going to happen on Monday. The defense is going to continue that it was underlying health conditions. Drug use is what caused the death. 
the prosecution is going to stick to plain and simple those nine minutes and 29 seconds that Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's back on his neck is what caused the whole thing. So we'll see what happens Monday and, you know, we'll see how quickly the jury comes back with a verdict. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Legally, they may have won and may have actually set a precedent where the FBI and other law enforcement agencies would be able to just force Apple to break into these phones whenever they had a warrant. Joining us now is Reed Albergati, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Reed. Thanks for having me. Back in December of 2015, there was a terrorist shooting in San Bernardino, California. This was uh, done by Rizwan Farouk and his wife, Tashfin Malik. They did this at Farouk's company holiday party. They ended up killing about a dozen people or so. And in the aftermath of all of that, they recovered an iPhone 5C from uh, the scene there. And uh, if a lot of people may remember, you know, this set off this kind of fight between the Department of Justice and Apple for a way to unlock that iPhone. They had just come out with their latest operating system. It had increased security and the FBI could not get into that phone. And uh, I think it was if, you know, you try to put in a password 10 times, it might delete the contents of the phone. They wanted to get in there to see if there was anything else related to their plot or other people they might have been in contact with. So that's why they wanted to get in there. In the end, the FBI went to a little-known Australian firm who, who we didn't know who they were until just now. And, uh, you know, it's just a crazy story of how they were able to unlock this phone. So, Reed, tell us a little bit about who ended up getting in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, you explained the story pretty well. And I think for five years, people have kind of batted around ideas about who it might be. And there's been a couple of names in the, in the media a lot. But those rumors have been wrong. And the firm was actually called Azimuth Security, which is based in Australia, founded by a guy named Mark Dowd, who's a very well-known Australian cybersecurity expert, or you could call him a hacker. And the exploit, which actually unlocked that phone for the FBI, was written by another hacker who worked for Azimuth named David Wong. And um, he was also very well known in cybersecurity circles, especially for his work on iOS and jailbreaking phones. If you remember, you know, in the early days of the iPhone, people used to remove the software restrictions on their iPhones, which is called jailbreaking, to install unauthorized software on their iPhone. And he would work on those sorts of things. So both really brilliant people who, you know, well known in, in the security world, but probably no one outside of that world has heard of them. They were behind this. You know, we go back to what was going on back then. You know, a lot of things just kind of kept furthering the story. We found out that the FBI ended up paying this company, Azimuth, $900,000 to do it. So a lot of money there. But as I mentioned also, the, the fight between the Department of Justice and Apple, you know, Apple was refusing to do this. And at the time, people were like, why wouldn't you help them? This is a terrorist's phone. We need this information. But they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to create this back door that could later be abused by whoever else. So that that was kind of the moral fight, I guess you could say, that was going on at the time. That's right. And, you know, there was a court case. The FBI actually did get a court order forcing Apple to unlock the phone or help the FBI unlock the phone. And Apple apparently did have that capability at the time. So this case was on track 
to be a precedent-setting case, which who knows how it would have ended up, but a lot of people thought that the FBI did have a good argument here legally, maybe not policy-wise. I mean, there were lots of debate about whether this was good policy, but legally they may have won and it may have actually set a precedent where the FBI and other law enforcement agencies would be able to just force Apple to break into these phones whenever they had a warrant. So in a way, Azimuth really kind of saved Apple from this outcome because once the FBI was able to unlock the phone, they really had no choice but to go to the court and say, look, we have to withdraw this this plea because we've already unlocked the phone. So it kind of delayed it. And for the last five years, we haven't heard much about this debate. And I think that's in part because there are a lot of firms out there like Azimuth who are able to break into these phones without Apple's help. There's sort of this balance where if the FBI wants to do this for a criminal case, they need to get a warrant And once they use one of these exploits that, you know, like you said, can cost a lot of money, that exploit, it's more vulnerable to being discovered by Apple or or other software companies that might patch it and then make that exploit useless to the FBI. So they have to use these exploits sparingly. So we kind of have this equilibrium now. Maybe equilibrium is a bad term, but we have a... We have a system of checks and balances that yeah. are sort of built in without having this built-in backdoor that the FBI had wanted. And in the end, it was a little anticlimactic. You know, they unlocked the phone. There was nothing of real significance in there. There was no other links to foreign terrorists or plots or anything like that. So it was a bust in that sense. But tell us a little bit about those exploits and how they actually did it, because they had to chain a few different exploits together. They ended up calling it Condor which, uh, you know, it's a little code name for it. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, they deal in these little bugs in the iPhone and one bug does one thing, the other bug does something else. And you put them together and then you're able to get into the phone. So how did they actually do it? That's right. And you mentioned earlier that the phone had this restriction where if you type the passcode in more than 10 times, it would erase the phone. So what this hack actually does is disables the requirement to this feature that erases the phone after 10 passcode attempts and allows them to just brute force the password, just essentially guess the password. It was a four-digit password, so it didn't take very long using you know sophisticated computers to guess it. But the way it started was long before, I don't exactly know how long before, but before the San Bernardino attacks, Mark Dowd, you know, the founder of Azimuth, had actually discovered this bug in Mozilla code. It was open source code that Apple was using to interface with external hardware devices. And he hadn't done much with it. But then after these attacks, the FBI was looking for this way to unlock the phone. And Azimuth had already been working with the FBI on other projects. So they said, you know, we're actually about, you know, we have this, we have this bug. We're probably 90% of the way there to finding an exploit that will work on this phone. Why don't we try? And David Wong took that bug and figured out how to, starting with bypassing that lightning port, you know, turning that bug into an exploit for the lightning port, then sort of taking it the next level and escalating privileges with another exploit. In the end, there were three exploits that allowed Azimuth's full chain to essentially remove that password requirement. Then they went over and tested it at FBI headquarters. And it worked. The FBI then did further testing on other phones to make sure that it, you know, it worked 100% of the time. And then they unlocked the terrorist phone. 
and then went to the court and withdrew that court case. Interestingly, and this is also new information uh, in this article, pretty soon after, like a month or two after the FBI unlocked the phone, Mozilla actually patched that bug and made that worthless. So the FBI paid a lot of money for this and didn't get to use it much. They were only able to use it the once. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, just uh, for frame of reference, you know, I I live in California, very close to San Bernardino. You know, it's all Southern California right here for us. So this story was very close to home and we were you know all the local media out here was very much into the story and the conversation the fight over opening that iPhone was so intense with people on both sides you know privacy advocates and then people just saying hey we need to stop terrorists at all costs so it was just an interesting debate on that front and up until this point that's why it's significant we didn't know who it was and we didn't know exactly how they did it what the exploits were that they were able to get there and the last thing too it's just the last bit of the story is that Obviously, as you mentioned, Apple wants to know who these actors were, who were the people that finally broke their system there. And they came pretty close to finding out about it because they sued the company that was co-founded by one of these hackers that was involved in this. So they almost got there without you know, having to go through all of this. That's right. That's right. Apple is suing the security research tool maker called Corellian. And uh, Corellian was co-founded by David Wong. Um, And Apple, actually, after the San Bernardino unlock, actually tried to hire David, and then they tried to acquire Corellian. So it's really interesting how close Apple was to this the whole time and continues to be. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, one, it's the security research field is, is kind of small when you get to these very high levels of white, I would call them white hat hackers, you know, good guy hackers who work with government. It's it's kind of small. And Apple really likes to hire them because it helps Apple improve their own security. But it also gets at this other debate. So we had we had the encryption debate over whether, you know, Apple should should be forced to help the FBI. But there's this other debate that's a little bit less public and it's also kind of a cat and mouse game between Apple and companies like Azimuth, right? So on the one hand, Azimuth has, has helped Apple by creating these ways to unlock phones that really negate the need for the FBI or other law enforcement agencies to go to court and force a backdoor. On the other hand, Apple doesn't really like what they're doing, right? Because they're finding flaws in iOS and not telling Apple about it. And Apple wants to fix those flaws. They want to make their phones really secure. And every once in a while... You know, pretty regularly, you see these exploits come out that surprise everyone. I mean, earlier this year, there was a full chain with three different exploits that could be used together to remotely access iPhones that somebody just anonymously told Apple about, and Apple fixed it. And that does not look good for Apple. There are questions about, you know, why don't they catch these things? And the truth is, they can't. It's too big and complicated to fix every hole. So Apple, it's constantly fighting against this type of research. Reed Albergati, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.